Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. So hi, and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Fawcett, and with me today is Nick Telson. Nick is many things. He's an entrepreneur, he's an angel investor, he's a podcaster, a startup mentor, and also a public speaker. And his real speciality lies around offering founder and investor advice and help. So Nick's going to be talking about his experience starting and selling his own business, designmynight.com, his work as an angel investor, and offering some practical advice, hopefully, about startup mentality. So Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Mark. I think with so many titles describing the things that you do, really interested to know, first of all, what's an average week like for Nick Telson? A difficult question to answer. I think I want to add a lot of variety into what I do. So my week is very varied. So, you know, when I sold my original startup, I now have two more. So I'm heavily involved in those day to day. I'm meeting lots of younger founders to give them advice, to help them either raise money or just give them advice on their business or their startup. At the same time, I'm meeting other angel investors to build up network. A lot of it is about building up your network. And then being able to activate that network when you need. So yeah, very, very varied. And that's something I said when I, when I sold my first business, I wanted to have a varied lifestyle. Well, let's go back to that first business then, because I believe you were working as a product manager for L'Oreal. And then you said, I'm going to do my own thing. So how did that step go from working in a developing role in a very large corporation into stepping out on your own? So I did languages at university, so I did Spanish and Portuguese, so nothing to do with business, but realized that I really enjoyed sort of marketing, advertising, and luckily got a grad role at L'Oreal, which, you know, essentially is a a big marketing company. It's obviously a beauty company, but you know, it's all about how they market all their different products. It was a great company to go into very fast paced. They throw you in straight away. And I was there for about three or four years. Yeah, as a marketing product manager, worked my way out quite quickly. Things were going well, but it was actually then when I looked at my next step, my next step would have been general manager of one of the brands and actually the general manager, you know, who I was close with, I would see what she was doing and it was, you know, reports and reporting back to Paris all the time where head office was and actually not doing marketing. It just, that just sort of made me stop in my tracks and think, okay, well, the higher I climb at this business, the less actually marketing and stuff that I enjoy I'll be doing. So that planted sort of the first seed of doubt for me. And then it just so happened that at the same time, my best mate from uni, Andrew and I were just chatting about ideas and the sort of seed of design my night started to to form. He worked at Accenture, so it was in the same boat. So it wasn't very fulfilling for him, that role. He always wanted to do more startup stuff more than I did. Um, So yeah, with those two combining at the same time, I thought, okay, it's a good time to take a jump, take a risk. You know, I had very few responsibilities as well. So that was also a good time to start a startup. So once you'd taken the emotional decision and the big decision to leave a well-paid job with potentials to step into the unknown, what were the practical steps you had to take to go from zero to having a business up and running? 
we actually did was we worked on Design My Night for about a year while we were still in our jobs. So we were very practical in terms of how we were going to survive. So we knew that if we were going to do a startup, we probably wouldn't get a salary for at least two years. So Andrew and I were very methodical in terms of saving as much of our salary as possible. We're young, we were sort of early mid-twenties. So, you know, we stopped going out and spending money on food and alcohol and actually just really went into save mode to be able to launch the startup. And so, yeah, we worked every weekend, most evenings we'd meet up after our jobs um, to get the Design My Night ball rolling. Um, we then just saw some initial traction. So we would spend those weekends speaking to bar managers, pub managers, restaurant owners. They felt like there was a real need for what we were building. And the early stages of the website itself started to just get some early traction, some positive feedback. So it was only then, after a year of doing the both, that we thought, okay, now let's take the jump. And we've saved enough cash, personally, to be able to survive for at least 18 months. So now is the right time to do it. So it wasn't, let's build something and left our job straight away and then just went on to it. That's a very practical, very sensible approach, actually, to minimize the risk at that point. What was the revenue model of Design My Night? How did it actually earn its money? So it changed. So the original first model was, and this was back in 2010, so a long time ago now, was an advertising model. So it was like, okay, well, let's build the biggest going out website there is, you know, similar to Time Out that people will probably know. And sell advertising to drinks brands, um, to bars and restaurants who want to put their put eyeballs on their venues, which was sort of the way of the world back then when building a website. It was more about advertising revenue. We then pivoted towards bookings. So we looked at OpenTable that, again, most people will know, which was very much in the restaurant space. And we were focused more on the bar space. And we thought, okay, well, let's book people into bars. So it was very manual. So literally overnight, we just put a make an inquiry button on every bar page on our website and people could make an inquiry. It would come into myself and Andrew and we would just be relentlessly on the phones trying to book people into these bars and then sending them a text message saying you're booked. We would try and like attach an offer as well if we knew the bar well. We're doing that 24-7, just like booking people in. Back in the day then, when there was no reservation system for bars, booking yourself into a bar was really difficult because you would phone them and they wouldn't open till five. And then when they did open, you would get the manager on the phone who's also doing the ice machine, you know, didn't know about bookings and would just be like, yeah, whatever, or they wouldn't pick up the phone. So we were like, okay, if we can give people a very good service and we would do the grunt work in the background, that would be a, an eye-opener to people. And, and that's how it did prove. People started talking about us like, okay, well, if you want to book into a bar, go onto this website and they'll sort you out. Um, so that was how we sort of pivoted that model. And then be about three years in, we then built our own software. So that was the big pivot for us, where we launched our own reservation software for, at the start, bars and pubs. Um, so when you go onto their website and book in, it would actually be our software powering it. And we also built a ticketing platform as well. So similar to Ticketmaster, uh, where you could buy tickets from our website. So we then pivoted into a SaaS model, a software model, um, which was the big step change for our business and, and eventually is what allowed us to go on to sell it. Yeah. It strikes such a, a chord with my own experiences of starting a business with you and what you think the revenue streams will be. And, and I remember thinking we have this 
major sort of A revenue stream and that was all about loyalty programs and we have this B revenue stream which there won't be much of and about two years in had to ditch everything to do with the A revenue stream as we were almost going bust and it all became about putting the effort on the service model rather than the loyalty model so you've got to learn as you go along and change your plans but you started with what sounds like a really interesting mix of both the tech of its time but also a lot of manual intervention, which already seems quite old school. So when you turned to the software-based model and you started growing from there, at what point did you think, actually, this is a business that somebody will want to buy? I think after probably a year of selling this software, so going out to market with the software, we knew we were onto something. Bars, when we were meeting them, it was a yes straight away. It turned out they'd been gagging for a booking system that suited them. So before we launched, they would use OpenTable or Book a Table. There's lots of restaurant reservation platforms. But if you think about a restaurant, which is a table of 246, 246, very simple, versus a bar, which is seating, standing, guest list, sofas, everything can move, private hires, is a very complex beast. And they were sort of fudging restaurant platforms to make their systems work. So we came to them with this platform that was built for them. And it was just like, God, I've been waiting for this. So we very quickly sort of scaled to most of the well-known bars across the country and really started to sort of change the industry and actually show customers that you should book into a bar like you do a restaurant and actually showing the industry that bookings are good for you you know, guaranteed pre-book revenue for you. So it was educating both sides of the marketplace. And, and yeah, after a year, it was all, all the plates were starting to spin very nicely. And then it was like, okay, we really could be onto something here. And this therefore also put you on the guest list of pretty much every major bar in London. I think people think that I've never gone out as less as I did when running Design My Night. So uh, for our team, it was great. So, you know, they had uh, access to most bars in the capital and were writing reviews and stuff. So uh, it was definitely a perk for our team. But myself and Andrew were, yeah, head down 24-7 working, unfortunately. And then when it came to actually selling the business, you obviously hadn't done that at this point in time. How did you approach that? We got advice from our investors. So we raised angel investing investment throughout our journey. And we had six angel investors who were experienced. So they did the run of direction. But similarly to how we started the business, the end was very methodical as well. So it was a year process to sell. We engaged a broker who's someone that sells companies, an M&A broker, and went through, yeah, a year process of them working with us for a few months to put together the sales deck about Design My Night, and they fully had to understand our business and how it worked and where it was going. They would then tout us out to businesses that we thought would be interested and ones that they thought would be interested and private equity that we'd never heard of. And you, it's like an interview process. So, you know, they send it out to a hundred companies. You then have a stage one interview probably with 50 of them. You then get to another stage interview probably with 20 of them. You then go to another interview probably with 10 of them. And then you get to an offer stage. We were lucky. So we had a position of three companies that wanted to buy us. So you leave that out to the broker to obviously negotiate with the companies. Yeah, it's probably nine months, the whole journey that we then eventually said yes to Access Group, who are a UK unicorn actually that bought us. And then you do due diligence 
which was relatively smooth. So it's probably only, actually only about two, three weeks of due diligence. That was part of their offer package. We're not going to do months and months of due diligence. And then, yeah, accepted the offer and the deal was done. And by due diligence, that's the process you mean by where they get the right to look under the hood, so to speak, to inspect every little nook and cranny and corner of the business to check that what you're saying to them is true. Exactly. So, and they went pretty deep, but quickly. So yeah, they're looking at all your financials. They're looking at all of your contracts with your customers. We had to give them permission to speak to customers. I think, you know, they obviously had, I think they had PwC doing it. So they come in and just, as you say, just lift the hood. You give them exclusivity. So you basically say, okay, you guys have three weeks to get this deal done. Otherwise we'll go back to market again. So that obviously keeps everyone on their toes. We were pretty ready for that. So, you know, since day one, our financials, we kept very much in order. Um, so there was no massive surprises for them and it actually went quite smoothly. And when the deal went through, does that mean that you packed your bags and left the office or did you and Andrew stay around for a while? So we had a two year earn out. So how that worked. And again, that was part of the negotiation was they paid X amount of the price up front and then Y percent was based on us hitting targets over the next two years. And so we had revenue targets to hit, which again, we agreed upon as part of the negotiation. So yeah, we were very much in charge still. We still had our office. We had a team of about 80 to 100. So not much changed for those two years, apart from technically Andrew and I weren't the boss anymore. So we were essentially employees running Design My Night. And obviously that brings its own friction between you and your buyer who has their views on how you should run the business versus us already running it for eight years. So the team didn't see much difference, but Andrew and I, you know, weekly were having sort of battles with the owner to, to keep ourselves on track. And how did that manifest itself with examples? Because it, it's very different mentally when you know you can make all the decisions, but also the responsibility lies solely on you to then be in a position where actually you can't make all the decisions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's very tough. And I think you have to forge a good relationship with your buyer. I think that was a failing from us. I think we came out the gates a bit hard and we're just very like, just keep your distance from us. Like we need to hit these targets. We know exactly what we need to do to hit these targets. You don't to just let us be. But you've also got to understand that these guys have just paid a lot of money for you. They want to integrate you into their ecosystem as well. You know, that's part of why they bought you. Here's small things, you know, something like, you know, we use Gmail and they wanted to change us to Outlet. The ruckus that caused in the office from, you know, we had quite a young team who had never even seen Outlet before. So, for you know, for them to move everything from Gmail to Outlet, you know, so it's small things like that that like bubble up. Then you're just like, look, just that's just such a distraction that we don't need right now. You know, once we fully exited, do whatever you want. You know, we just focusing on driving revenue. There's just lots of little things like that where the corporate world smash against the startup world. I have distinct memories of taking on investors and I was about two years in and paying myself very, very little for those two years and then thought the business is going just well enough now for me to actually give myself a pay rise. And I wrote that into the numbers and the investors said no. And which I said, well, hang on, you mean I can't actually give myself a pay rise? This really isn't going to work out very well. I bought those investors out, actually. They made a return, but they were gone within two years. And I think a learning for me at that point was taking the money is one thing, but you've got to be really clear on the people you're taking with you. 
as well. And clearly what you've done in that particular exit is, is learned a bit about working with the people who you've bought or who've bought you. And I just wonder in terms of learnings overall. So this is your first business set up from scratch with a partner, created, built, sold, and then fully exited. What were the other mistakes that you've learned from that have allowed you to hopefully be more successful since? A lot. I said we were, you know, we were quite young when we started it and we're, you know, very fortunate to have sort of struck gold on the first effort. I think one thing is, you know, as a startup founder is your vision. You're very much the figurehead, um, but you need to give space to your team to breathe as well. I think you can only sort of be that sort of almost dictator for so long. And we hired great people, but I think one of our big failings was not trusting them just to get on with it. So Andrew and I were very much fingers in all the pies across the whole business, you know, very much like, well, we know how it needs to be run. And that attitude is incorrect. You can still steer the ship while letting other people sort of run with your idea. And look, people who are probably smarter than you anyway, especially in different areas, my newer businesses um, I've very much taken more of a step back approach and letting people thrive, letting them make their own mistakes, coming to me with anything they need to come to me with, and me not being on top of them. Um, so I think that's a very big thing. Another huge, you know, tip is is really understanding the market that you operate in. I think it's very easy to come up with an idea and then just run with it. But I think what we learn. And something that we did unknowingly was spent a lot of time with the industry. So really got to know bar managers, really got to know restaurant managers, came to them with no ego. You know, we were from L'Oreal and Accenture. We'd never run a bar before. And us really understanding the industry and making friends within the industry allowed us to be able to pivot throughout our time because we really understood their needs. Um, so you need to come to an industry without ego and learn from the people within that industry while still executing on your own vision. So again, you know, with one of my newest startups, Trumpet is in the sales space. Before we launched it, we spoke to 150 salespeople and literally just said, what do you think? Tell me it's awful. Just what do you think? And I think too many founders might just sort of jump into an idea without taking the time to really understand the industry they're going to go into. And so let's move on to Trumpet then and perhaps give a short explanation of, of what Trumpet brings to the market. So Trumpet was something I always say when you're coming up with an idea for a, from, for a startup, it's great to look back at your experience in life. So what parts of your life or your working life um, do you understand that could be better? That's constantly what I'm doing. It's constantly what I'm challenging myself with. And um, Trumpet was born out of the sales space. So when I thought back to our sales team at Design My Night, how did we sell? So how did we sell was we had a CRM system and then we used to cold call people, send them PDFs about why our booking system was great, follow up with 50 emails to then get the deal done. And we just thought there had to be a better way to do this. There was lots of tools coming out for different teams. So Figma for product designers, Slack, obviously in communication, Intercom for customer support, all these amazing tools, but nothing in sales. It was still PDF slides, very old school. So we wanted to allow salespeople to create microsites in seconds, personalized to that prospect. So when the prospect receives this microsite, it's interactive, it's collaborative. It has all the content they need to make a buying decision. 
and sort of modernize how sales is done. And that was the original vision. And yeah, we took about eight, nine months to build it and come up with the brand and launched it in summer last year. And so with your experience of the people you brought in before and what you learned about management, about leadership, what role are you doing in this new business? So yeah, so from the learnings I took about not being able to do everything effectively, we thought, okay, what are we best at and what do we enjoy? And for me, it's marketing and sales. So, you know, I'm very much sort of leading the marketing side of it, but have brought in a marketing lead. So work with her on executing our marketing vision, but very much giving her the reins and me just helping as and when. I think as a founder, you're always going to have to be uh, responsible for culture and team. So, you know, almost like an HR role, especially in the early days. So I don't think that necessarily goes away. But what we've done differently to what I did at Design My Night is we've sort of hired in leaders within different areas. So immediately, rather than bringing in a customer success executive, we brought in a customer success manager to build processes and eventually build a team. We brought in a dev lead to build dev processes and build a dev team. We brought in our marketing lead to work with me and take the reins on marketing. So rather design my night where our resources were more scarce and we hired young and trained them up. We've sort of flipped it slightly and hired a bit more experience to let them build teams with our guidance. And if that's partly based on your own experience and also now presumably your confidence that you know what you're doing, have you taken a different approach to investment this time? So Design My Night was bootstrapped, which in the startup world means uh, you raise no or very little money. And, you know, all the money you make is what you put back into the business. So we only ever raise, I say only, but in the startup world, it's small, uh, £500,000 throughout our whole life cycle. Um, Trumpet, we've already raised $3 million from VCs as well. So we're sort of VC back. There's no right way or wrong way to fund a startup. Why we did it this way with Trumpet um, was Trumpet had the, or still has the possibility of being very global very quickly. It's a self-serve tool like a Slack. So, you know, if you're in sales, you just go onto our website, sign up, get going. We've got customers around the world already. So we feel like we needed a bit more substance early on in terms of team and brand and ability to expand globally, whereas Design My Night was a much more slow burn. Um, it's not something that we could take globally very quickly either. So it's a much more sort of build slowly, build revenue product, whereas Trumpet is a bit more that here's an opportunity, which we think is real globally. Let's go for it. So all of the experience you've picked up, not just in these two businesses, but in other ones you've been involved with, have also led you to do more about supporting and advising other young founders and those in a startup position. So what are you doing in that area of mentoring and training and supporting? So yeah, that's really important to me. I think there's a lot of good information now for founders. And a lot of it, I have to say, is written by people that haven't been a founder or been successful. So I'd always err with caution on whose advice you take. Me personally, as an investor as well. So Obviously, I get to see a lot of startup decks, a lot of founders come to me. And what I try to do, you know, and I can't do this with everyone, unfortunately, is, you know, if it's something that I'm not interested in as an investment point of view, um, I will always try and give feedback, give my opinion humbly, not say you have to listen to my opinion, but I try not to say, no, this is not for me. 
I'll look at a deck and be like, okay, A, this is how you can improve the deck. And B, from a business point of view, if I was a founder, these are the questions I'd be asking myself. And others, when I've had the time, it depends on my schedule, I've taken on like official mentors, uh, mentees. So I've normally got a roster of founders I'm mentoring, which is, you know, they can just WhatsApp me whenever, or we'll go for regular coffees to catch up about their business. I also speak a lot, a lot of events for, for founders. Uh, I've gone into schools as well to try and talk about entrepreneurship. It's a great industry to go in. And I think one of my biggest advice for the young people that I speak to at least is being a founder is incredibly, incredibly tough. You might see on sort of LinkedIn or TikTok, the glamorous side of being a founder and the exits and all of that. But to get to that, you know, you have to work like you have never, ever worked before and be ready for what it means. So, you know, a lot of the time I say to potential founders is A, not everyone is right to be a founder and that's fine. And B, just go and work in startups. Like, you know, startups are the new L'Oreal. You know, there's so many startups out there where you can go and start your first job, you know, whether it's in customer success or account management or dev. Um, there's scale-ups as well, which are startups that, you know, have got significant funding, so a bit more secure if you're worried about stability in your job role. But go and learn. Go and work in a startup. Learn from the founders of those startups. See if you like that environment. And that should then start to spring ideas in your mind, whether you then go and start your own thing. Um, but that's always a great springboard for me, which people sort of miss out. They just go straight to being a founder. I think it's incredibly tough to go from almost no work experience to straight into being a founder. And the experience you picked up before you did that with your partner, Tim at Accenture and you at L'Oreal, the marketing and the business consultancy are just fantastic backgrounds. I, I know that when I'm speaking to, to young people thinking about this themselves, I'm often asking them, well, describe what successful life looks and feels like to you. And sometimes what they're describing doesn't feel like the life of a founder. And, you know, they can earn a lot of money by working for other people and not necessarily carrying that responsibility if money is their motivator. But I'm wondering for you now, Nick, obviously, you know, you made presumably a good amount of money because Design My Night was sold for or more than about $30 million and some of that came your way. And looking ahead for yourself now, what do you want as success? What's the driver for, you know, a really exciting, happy, contented life for you? Yeah, I mean, it's the question I asked myself for the first time ever when I exited. So I was very much, I was very studious at school and university and I got all A's and I got my degree and then I fell into L'Oreal and enjoyed my time there and climbed the ladder and never really stopped to think, what does happiness look like from a, bi a business point of view? And then went straight into Design My Night and did that ride. So I actually had a sort of a real tough two weeks after I sold, fully exited Design My Night, which was in 2019. That morning I woke up, I had no, that's it, no responsibilities, no emails, no slack. I had nothing really. I'd never had that since my school days. So had to sort of ask myself some tough questions of, yeah, well, what does happiness look like? Um, I know it's very easy to say once you have some money, but money genuinely doesn't give you happiness. I think money helps and it can help you on that path maybe to freedom rather than happiness. But I really had to ask myself, yeah, what is going to drive me to get out of bed every day? Um, because it's not buying stuff. It's not going on holiday every week. That's not the reality of life. And when I asked myself those questions, it was actually the cut and thrust of startup life. Um, 
I love the idea of building brands and coming up with ideas that people are then willing to pay for. And I think with Trumpet, you know, it's got the potential to be a, a mega global brand. And the shift definitely in my mind has come from wanting to do that rather than wanting to make lots of money from it. It's enjoying that ride, enjoying the current thrust of, of this startup. And that's what Andrew and I are now doing. So we've got Trumpet. We've got another company called Sequel, which uh, is in the sports investing space, which is another startup. We're formulating another, a third idea at the moment as well. Um, so that's what really drives us. And it's all about purpose. So, you know, what is your purpose that gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, and for us, it was actually building brands, building businesses on the one hand. And for me, on the other hand, was sort of helping young founders and seeing them go on their path. So it's something I recommend everyone ask themselves. And it's something I should have asked myself earlier is, yeah, what does drive me? What genuinely gives me happiness? What do I think gives me purpose in life? And you should aim towards that pathway as early as possible in your career. Yeah. And I think also what gives you purpose may change at different times as you go along as you go through different life stages and different priorities, but it's always useful, even more so, even critical to revisit what do I want to be achieving? And one thing I note, you and Andrew obviously have worked incredibly well together and still do. How do you make that work from a business perspective when at times there must be differences of opinion about direction? There's also lots of money involved. How do you keep working so well together as a pair? I think the biggest attribute that we have for each other is trust and trust in many ways, but A, we trust each other professionally. So we have very different skill sets. When we do a business, I let Andrew run his side of that business. He lets me run my side of the business. We trust each other just to get on with it. We then come together to discuss each other's arms of the business, how we can help each other. We disagree, but are good enough friends to be able to then have like a rational discussion and come to an agreement at the end of that. I think, yeah, it's very much like a marriage. You need to be able to have an argument and then move on. We're lucky. We've had very, very few sort of hardcore arguments, but I think it's that total, total trust in that other person. I trust him financially. I trust him personally, but also I respect him professionally that he will make the right decisions and all of his views come from a, a good place of wanting the business to grow as to mine. There's no other egos at play with us two. And I think that has to be the starting block of any co-founder. One thing I've noted is that you mentioned earlier the importance of networking and you also mentioned about the importance of understanding the market. You're very active and I would say have a strong presence on LinkedIn. And do you think that is an important or a critical tool for young founders, young startup career starters? Yeah, for me, it's sort of the much maligned social media. It's a very uncool social media. It's the only one I'm on. So I don't have TikTok. I don't have Instagram, use Facebook anymore. So from a personal point of view, I'm sort of anti-social media. I don't want that in my life. I don't feel like I need it. But I did make the active decision with LinkedIn when I exited actually to start building up my personal brand on there. A, because I wanted to help people. I wanted to give like genuine, free, actionable insights that people could take. And I get great messages from people reading my posts. But also it's a secret weapon in business. You can really meet great people on LinkedIn. You know, I've met investors for Trumpet that actually outreach to us that have invested. I've met good friends on there now. I've invested in people 
I've seen on LinkedIn, whether it's a DM or a, or a post. I've learned a ton as well of people more skilled in me in certain areas that I've taken those posts and applied them to our businesses. So, you know, for a free resource that all it takes is your time, I would definitely say go and start building your brand on there. What, what I say to young founders is talk about something you're passionate about. Talk about your journey. Don't try and BS on that. As I said, you know, there's a lot of people talking about being a founder and the success of being a founder that have never even done it themselves. You know, for me, social media is all about being genuine. So talk about your own journey. You will find your own tribe on there that find that interesting. And look, as you then build up a profile on there, it makes it a lot easier to sort of DM people, let's say like on a higher level than you in terms of if you would have cold outreached them on email, they probably would just ignore it. But, you know, if you've managed to build up a voice on there and they can see stuff you're posting about and you look interesting and then you reach out to someone on LinkedIn, then, you know, more likely than not to reply. Um, so for me, it's an absolute matter. I would say when we launched Trumpet, 70% of our customer base was from our LinkedIn posts. So myself, Andrew, we've actually got a third founder with Trumpet called Rory. Us posting relentlessly on LinkedIn about our journey, about building Trumpet has been one of our biggest sales funnels and it costs us nothing. And so taking this huge amount of experience you've gained and bottling it up, if you could go back to your younger self at university age, perhaps first year, fresher, and give them some advice saying, look, do this and don't do that. What might you say to yourself? It's funny, university, I'm quite torn on. Like I loved my time at university. I looked at my time at university as actually a period of personal growth language I never I didn't want to be a teacher I didn't want to be a translator I'm, I was just very good at languages that was one skill that I've got and I love learning languages so my sort of vision for university was I had the luck to be able to afford to take on that debt let's say pay my way through university which a lot of people aren't fortunate enough to do that so I saw that as more of doing something I loved while personal growth away from home I'm from London I went to Nottingham University I met Andrew there week one, so that was a very important meeting. A lot of my lifelong friends now are from university. However, the flip of that is, you know, now it costs you or you leave university with 50, 60 grand's worth of debt. You know, one thing I might have said to myself was just go and work for a startup. Go and be a generalist in a startup or maybe start in account management or customer success where you don't necessarily need, you know, a qualification like uh, dev um, or finance and just immerse yourself into the startup world because I didn't know how much I was going to love this world. Um, so that's probably one of the, you know, the main conundrums I would have given myself. I don't regret going to a corporate. I think I still recommend that as well. I think that's a great grounding for people. You know, you learn how to manage a P&L, you learn how to manage a team, you learn how to manage a marketing budget, you learn about HR, all of those things that you need to build a startup. So you know, just going down the corporate route doesn't mean you're shutting off your startup journey down the line either. It's something I would highly recommend to people. And who might you suggest your to, to your 20-year-old younger self plays you in the, in the film of your life? I'm trying to think of someone dashing that, unfortunately, I don't look like. Jude Law, maybe? Because I myself as quite good Jude Law. Yeah, we'll go with Jude Law. So it's been fascinating, Nick, and really interesting to just hear more, not just about the first startup, but the lessons that came from that have gone into Trumpet and others since then. In particular, three things you were mentioning were, were having a really clear vision and the importance of that, giving space to the people you hire 
and not being in their faces clearly all the time. And also gaining the experience of the market, meeting as many people as possible who are your potential customers in the market you can operate in. I think that's really solid, learned experience to be passed on. In terms of passing on experience, one of the things we want to do is keep passing along the baton of people's careers and their stories from that. So is there one other person who you think we should get on to Careers Unwrapped and to learn and hear from them? Actually, one of my investments is in a company called All Plant, which are very well known now, sort of do plant-based ready meals. They won't like me calling them ready meals. They're a big company. The founder there, JP, is one of the best and most interesting founders I've had the pleasure of sort of meeting and working with. I had a 20-minute chat with him and invested straight away. And he's also gone on a different path working in Africa as well. And then setting up all plants, which is now his sort of life's mission around plant-based food. So yeah, get him on. I think he would be a thoroughly interesting chap. Nick, thank you so much for being available to unwrap your career to help us understand the real life inside what it feels like in a starter as a founder. So it's been great having you on. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business or organisation to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.